Next Chapter Podcasts. Like a bad case of the clap, you can't get rid of us. And usually, you get the clap when you're having a good time. This is Indecent with Kiki Anderson, the podcast where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society and where NSFW meets LMAO. It's episode eight. And so far on the show, we've spent a lot of time on the who, what, and how behind which parts of our world get to stand in the mainstream spotlight and those that have to slink around the back door, literally and figuratively. Last time, the brilliant digital organizer Bridget Todd tried to warn us about how corporate greed alienates important voices on the internet. How do platforms like Twitter become big racist orgies instead of the useful tools they could be? I think the big threat is that normal people, people who are not extremists, people who are not invested in causing chaos or spreading garbage or nonsense, they're just going to say, I don't need this in my life and leave. And so this incredibly powerful platform is then just made up of people who are interested in, you know, extremism, hate speech, mis- and disinformation, harassment, not to mention like crypto scams and all other kinds of scams and like really scammy, spammy advertising. But now we're going to take a closer look at the why. Why are people so down to believe that Jews control the weather? Anyone who's ever met a Jew knows we hate schwitzing. Global warming is our worst nightmare. Why would we like fake the Holocaust and then turn the whole planet into an oven? It makes no sense. Come on. So today we're going to deep dive into the right wing headspace that breeds everything from tiki torch wielding white boys to sociopaths who totally miss the point of American Psycho. You like Huey Lewis in the news? But before we start poking around in the brains of the racist virgins and Christian doomsday stands, we wanted to provide as much context as possible. Now, obviously, this country has a long history of violent ultra-right movements. I mean, the Klan is older than the Red Cross or Major League Baseball. But there's a whole ecosystem of disgusting little organisms and entities that have flourished in the petri dish of America's white suburbs and trailer parks over the last 150 years. That's why we're gonna get started with a little glossary of terms. Language is how we define our reality, so to help you better understand what's squirming around there in the shadows, here's a few buzzwords to watch out for. First up, let's talk numbers. Numbers are pretty important to the hard right because they're an easy way to disguise hate speech right on the open. For example, 14, very important number because it represents the so-called 14 words, which are, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. That's a quote from domestic terrorist David Lane. There's also the shorter, quippier six words, never date outside of your race. You what? I'm not saying it's an immediate red flag if you see either number in someone's Bumble profile, but if they look especially Nordic, you might want to think before you're 69. Another important number is 88. See, H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. So naturally, when you put two eights together, you get Hail Hitler. It's so stupid. It's almost good. Okay. Now, my personal favorite is 311. Not the band. The band claims that they got their name for the police code for public nudity. But K is the 11th letter of the alphabet. And in white power wacko world, you put three of those together and you got yourself a clan of Ku Kluxes. And one more big scary number to watch out for is 2316, because it represents WP, meaning white power. You see that number tattooed on someone? There's a good chance they've done a hate crime. Now onto some of the lingo. There's a lot of subgroups that populate the world. Accelerationists, sometimes called the Boogaloo Boys or the Base, 
are some of the most intense. They believe in using violence and disinformation to kickstart a second civil war that's like way more about race than the original one. Their symbol is a blue igloo for some reason, which is like weirdly quaint. And one of their biggest claims to fame is that some of them got caught trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan while using a PT Cruiser as the getaway car. I knew I fucking hated those cars, yuck. Groupers are the army of Gen Z edgelords that have rallied around a freaky cartoon frog, and they're led by smirking twink, Nick Fuentes. They try to force conservative politicians to embrace more extreme views by heckling them at public events with questions like, how does anal sex help us win the culture war? It's a good question. Very interesting. Then there's the manosphere, which honestly sounds like a sweaty butthole, but you know, it actually is very close to that. It's the entire internet sewer system of subreddits, blogs, Twitch streams, where all the incels, alpha male influencers, men's right activists, and pickup artists all stew in their collective juices. <laughs> Sorry, that was me just crawling out of my skin. Oath Keepers. Those are the militia movement that recruits directly from the military and the police, because where else do you need to look for gun-toting assholes who are licensed to kill? Well, well, well. Proud Boys. Well, you've heard of them. We're not going to spend too much time talking about those dorks. But if you want to see something that's really bizarre, Google the founder, Gavin McInnes, shoving a butt plug up his ass during a live stream to quote unquote, own the libs. He did that. Oh. And finally, we have soy boys, which is what the right call liberal men who have become pussyfied by eating tofu instead of red meat. Fellas, is it gay to be healthy? The people are asking. Heck yes! Okay, now that we've boned up on the vocab, we're ready for the deep dive. The far right's flavor of alternate reality is dark and twisted. So we're gonna need a little help to understand what the fuck is going on with these people, lest we go tumbling down some flat earth faked moon landing rabbit hole. That's why I reached out to Jesse Dollimore and Brittany Page. Jesse and Brittany are seasoned political commentators who co-host the incredible podcast, I Doubt It, where they discuss news and social issues from a progressive perspective. Jesse's a former Marine and self-proclaimed reformed Republican. He also hosts the hit YouTube series, The Dollamore Daily. Both of them escaped extreme right-wing upbringings and they pulled no punches. They're explaining how people get trapped in this darkness and why it's so rare for people to ever see the light. Hi, thank you guys so much for being with me. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. Jesse, Brittany, why don't you tell me a little bit about like, individually how you guys grew up like what your background is a little bit and then like where where you are now on the political spectrum like what do you dedicate your life to now yeah so i grew up in a, a white supremacist household uh, my parents moved us from southern california to idaho when I was very young to be closer to Aryan nations, when Aryan nations was actually located in Northern Idaho, it is no longer there, but there is a growing and large faction of white supremacists still in Idaho. The problem's actually getting worse right now, but, um, I grew up, you know, not believing the Holocaust happened, being indoctrinated about, um, different racial minorities being inferior and, I, I don't think my parents had a, a grip on like what their political activism or political orientation actually was. Although I remember my, my dad taking us to meet Pat Buchanan, <laughs> what a, what a joy that was. And 
So I think I naturally kind of found my way as I got more educated over time and people were able to intervene with me, meaning my teachers and counselors that I, that I encountered along the way that helped teach me about the reality of the world. But also I was raised very poor and, um, you know, my, my parents were getting arrested and there was substance use and it was a chaotic household. So I, uh, luckily found my way to education through things like pale grants. And I really started to see how the social safety net in this country can help people escape the, the station that they're born into. And so I found my way to progressive politics just over time. I mean, it, I'm telling a very short story like it happened in the span <laughs> of a few minutes, but this was, you know, years in the making. And, and over time, I was able to um, escape that indoctrination. And now I host a political podcast where I am uh, active, uh, pushing progressive policies and encouraging people to vote for progressive candidates, interviewing progressive candidates that are running for Congress, and yeah, trying to to do the work to, I guess, undo the early damage that that my parents did. And also, I, I knew you would not toot your own horn, but now has a master's of science in clinical psychology, is a, a mental health professional, volunteers at a at a locked psychiatric facility here in Washington, D.C., is just has absolutely extricated herself from the filth uh, in which she grew up. I just have so many questions. But before we even go deep on like how you break out of that, uh, Jesse, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up also very poor, um, single mother. Uh, eventually, um, she married a, a, a dude, and it was a, a Christian nationalist, far right wing household where you know I was taught that black people have a different skeletal structure than whites, and like just insane um, believing that the earth is seven thousand years old, just absolute abject nuttiness, but peppered in with extreme right-wing politics. I mean, to this day, my parents believe that um, the governor of Idaho, Brad Little, is a liberal, and he is a wildly extreme Republican by any measure, and they consider him a rhino, a Republican in name only. So uh, it took me a long time to, to, to get out of it, to extricate myself, to, to use the term I just used for Brittany. Um, and a lot of it came with education and being open to new ideas, allowing myself, giving myself permission to change my mind when the facts change, or in my case, when my understanding of those facts change. So uh, I am without a doubt progressive, um, almost exclusively in politics, but you know, there's, there's still tinges, I think of like a, a romanticism for libertarianism where in, in a utopic existence, we could all do our thing and, and get by. Uh, it just doesn't exist in the real world where a, a, a society government free could be anything other than a hellscape. So, And so I guess this question is for both of you, because I think, Brittany, you use the term white nationalist or you use the term white supremacist. And then, Jesse, you said white nationalist. Is there a difference in the way you guys grow up like in the ideals or do they all kind of lead to the same future? Well, I think one is more explicit and one is more implicit. Brittany's upbringing was more explicit. Mine was more implicit. I said Christian nationalist. We were white. And I think, uh, especially in today's world, 
anytime you hear someone espousing Christian nationalism as an ethos or an ideology, you should just automatically, as a shadow metric, put white in front of that because there are no black Christian nationalists. Christian nationalism is inherently a, a white organized movement. So I think, you know, like I said, my parents absolutely, uh, when I was growing up, espoused, especially my stepdad, espoused racist I- ideas to me. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, we had pictures of Adolf Hitler in the house. It was more implicit. Meaning we had pictures of Adolf Hitler in the house. <laughs> yeah. What decor? That's crazy. He's not even a good looking guy. <laughs> no, and he's also not Aryan. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what, so what was the end goal in your families? Like, what did your parents ho- hope you'd grow up to be for both of you? <laughs> um, some kind of uh, indoctrinator or cult leader, probably. I mean, I, that's what I call it now, but like a pastor or, you know, a, a, a tent revivalist, maybe. Yeah, I think for me, it depends on what time period we're talking about. I mean, there's like, you know, in and out of coherence that there's like different time periods where I feel like the answer would be different. I think if you were to ask my mom on a good day, she would have wanted me to be a successful person that was educated. But I don't know that either of my parents had the ability to be forward looking and actually think about what was going to happen to their four kids when they were adults. I don't think that they had that ability. Yeah, I'm trying to think like what's a profitable job for a white nationalist besides like politics. Like I don't I don't know what that job is. <laughs> well, I think profitable is a it's a variable term. It's relative because a lot of you know a lot of these people don't have hopes of being I mean th- they'll say they do. They want to be the next Donald Trump or something, but really it's the service industry or blue collar work which is honorable and great, but a lot of these people don't really have legitimate or reasonable expectations to have some lofty, high, high income position. That's interesting because like when we're talking about politics, a lot of it is fueled by money, but maybe on the lower levels, you know, just your common Joe Schmo in Iowa or Idaho, it's really not about money. Like where does that fuel come from? Where does that hate come from? Like at the end of the day, what does it boil down to? Uh, Otherizing. Go ahead, Brittany. No, I, I think that that's that's part of it. I mean, I think it's a, it's a lot of different factors blended into one thing. But I think one factor that we can highlight is the disappointment that one may have with their life station, where they've ended up, and then looking for an explanation that is outside themselves so that they don't have to like look internally and think about maybe the mistakes that they've made or grapple with things that they could do better. And it's easy to point at someone else and say, well, because of affirmative action, they got into college or because of affirmative action, they got the job or whatever it might be. And so I think these are easy explanations for things that allow you to have some distance for actually maybe taking responsibility or we're looking in the mirror and it makes it a little safer uh, to have an outside explanation for why things went wrong. It just blows my mind because like, like I grew up in a, my immediate family is very liberal, but you start branching out and they get very Republican. <laughs> and I have like wealthy Republican relatives that they'll come over for dinner and like, no matter what the fuck I'm talking about, they always want volunteer their political opinion. It's like it infiltrates every thought that they have. I'm like, why are you so angry all the time? We were talking about Barbie. We were talking about artichokes. We were talking about literally anything other than politics. Like, how how do you find so much fuel to be so mad? 
It's a good question. (laughs) I would love to know. (laughs) We spend a lot of time talking about that on the show because, and we hear a lot from our listeners that come from families filled with conservatives. And a common question we get is like, how do we cope on the holidays? Like, what are we supposed to do? We want to go see our families, but we don't want to be around them on the holidays. They're going to talk about politics. And I think a lot of it is, you know, for older people, they're just on Facebook all day or they're on whatever social media they have and their algorithm is just feeding them constant conspiracies and news stories and one after the other. And at a certain point, it's, you know, difficult for certain people, I think, to distinguish between what is real information and what is disinformation. And especially if you are being told something that fits with what everybody around you believes or what you want to believe it's much more difficult to say, hmm, is this actually true when it's maybe something you want to believe or makes you feel comforted? Which is also an organized strategy and modus operandi of the right. If you can have your electorate less worried about their own economic station in life and how well they're they're providing for themselves and their families and be more interested in the Barbie movie or whether or not a football player kneels silently and peacefully for the national anthem, you've, you've got them. Now they're distracted. Now they're not focusing on the real issues that could materially change their lives. They're focused on the dumb shit that the dumb fucks in Washington insist that they focus on. Right, because you keep people mad about these issues. Well, then you don't have to do any real work. You don't really have yeah. to solve poverty or anything. Just keep people mad about Barbie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Ugh, I'm shooketh. Anyone else? Now remember, these people are heavily armed. And not just that, they fucking vote, bruh. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a full-on QAnoner. But while you might be horrified by the idea that a woman who calls school shootings false flags could be elected to sit on a congressional education committee, not all the loonies go that far, okay? There have been a lot of sad and surreal social and political movements that never made it. And that's on both the right and the left. So before we go any further, my producers and I gave each other a little homework assignment. Let's seek out the dumbest political movements we could possibly find. And we're back. It's the Indecent Team. Once again, together via the internet. Today was a very special treat for me because we're looking up political weirdos and weirdo movements And I've had a special interest in my choice this week. Should I go first? You guys cool with that? Take it away. Yeah. yeah. I've had a special interest in this dude since I was a kid because I grew up in Tacoma Park and my parents used to go to the farmer's market every Saturday there. And at this, like in this very crunchy hippie neighborhood of DC, uh, there was always like political booths set up. And one of them that was always there was the Lyndon LaRoucheites. He has a, a bunch of different names that his kind of his groups go by. So it's kind of hard to say, like, it's not like the Moonies or something like that. Could I propose the umbrella term LaRouche bags? LaRouche bags. Yes, I love <laughs> it. LaRouche bag. So um, he was a conscientious, conscientious objector to World War Two and a college dropout. And in the late 60s, he gets involved in teaching Marxist politics in New York City and labor organizing. And then he forms this group called the National Caucus of Labor Committees. It's like really popular with like college kids. And they're basically kind of trying to like take on the uh, SDS, the Students for... The Democratic Society. Yeah. Basically kind of like horn in on their action. And... Um, 
it quickly gains this cult following his the NCLC mainly because Lyndon LaRouche really does treat it like a cult. He expects total commitment out of people and eventually starts using drugs and even psychological psychological torture techniques to kind of bend people to his will. They did this one thing called ego stripping where he would have you know a group sit around in a circle and have one person like in the middle and everybody would just like shout what they thought was wrong with that that person yeah, at them that's classic cult shit every everybody takes turns beating everybody else down the the weird stuff starts to come in in the 70s when he he basically starts treating this organization uh which has now become international it's like in like 30 different countries at this point as like a private intelligence agency where he he forms all these like little subgroups of the NCLC with all these different names like the Schiller Institute and he gets them to to like basically build a a network of information gathering on all of his enemies and also just like political opponents and things like that and then eventually he gets involved in like actually running for office by forming the US Labor Party but he like basically really starts drifting hard right the more successful he becomes. And also just kind of like the crazier he becomes, the more successful he becomes. Like he makes claims that Queen Elizabeth secretly controlled the international drug trade. Ooh, yeah, I kind of believe that one. Where's my kilogram of yayo? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he's like coming up with all these like really crazy conspiracy theories that people are just like, "Uh uh-huh, sure. Like one of them was that only one and a half million Jews died in the Holocaust. So not zero. (laughs) So he's not a total Holocaust denier. It's just the Holocaust wasn't that bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And also this is my uh, personal favorite. Jazz is a racist musical form invented by whites to enslave black people. Just try and try, take a second and try and figure that one out. Well, so it's, again, it's like a a real mental gymnastics to be like, black people are being oppressed in America. And you're like, okay, by jazz. Uh, And then he's like, and white people invented it. It's like, so this is really about how white people are better. That's the root of this. (laughs) Well, like that that thing is like some of it's, it's some of his beliefs are like really crazy and some are, are like actually kind of make sense, which is why he's like, you know, he's able to rope people in, especially young people, because like he's big. He was big on the um, increasing regulation of banks after the financial crisis. That was like a huge platform for him. And he was big into like renewable energy, like uh, fusion. He like funded a fusion research project. Um, also, one of their main platforms was enforcing a form of tune instrument tuning at orchestra performances that was supposed to like vibrate in a special way with like the universe he, he wanted it. to like establish that as like the universal standard for <laughs> for like court you know it's just fun stuff like that um let's try it let's try it for a year yeah <laughs> I, I take a shot see what happens right <laughs> I, mean, um, I guess i don't want all the orchestra performances i go to to be ruined the what two or three times a week i'm down there at the orchestra pit <laughs> yeah, you i know you throwing elbows in the orchestra pit <laughs> you're a real oboe head when he must be like so old now right no, he's dead. He died in 2019. Oh, okay. um, but I think the U.S. Labor Party still exists. And, um, you know, but he did like go. He also went to jail for defrauding his followers and like tax evasion and stuff like that. He also like moved into an armed compound and there was like almost like a Ruby Ridge Waco style showdown to bring him in because he had like a private security force. Um, so, yeah, again, very culty. And um, 
he also the thing is he he only went to jail for four years but he did run one of his eight unsuccessful presidential campaigns from jail shades of 2024 yeah there's hope for donald trump i guess Uh, is that that what you're saying (laughs) there's yeah there's no law that says you can't run for president and win while in prison so that is actually true what right yeah well, I was going to say, yeah, I can go next because my my group grew out of kind of the same movement or actually kind of the opposite side, because you mentioned the SDS and they weren't directly involved in this, although some of their members were. But mine is they're only mostly called the Yippies, but technically they were the Youth International Party. And so they came out of like the mid to late 60s, the like counterculture anti-war movement. Um, but basically they were kind of brought uh, brought into existence to um, get stoners and political activists to work together. Um, and the primarily what they did, because they had really like um, sincere beliefs, but they were primarily did like pranks and what or stunts or what we may even now call like a flash mob. Um, so like they invented the concept of the smoke in. So they would go to a public place and all smoke weed there as a form of protest. There's one that still happens in DC every year that is like inspired by their original one in DC. It um, happens in my backyard. Hey, <laughs> yeah, that one's every day. Uh, <laughs> uh, they also, I didn't fact check this, but one place said that they invented pie throwing quote as a political act. So they would do like kind of mock assassinations of politicians, but with like cream pies, like in a Looney Tune. And they got like eight or 10 of them, like directly in the face. That's like my, my friend's dad, who claims that he invented jogging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Well, the reason I know about these guys in part is because my dad and my uncles were like very much. I was a little nerdy political kid. And this is the stuff they were like, well, you got to find out about Abby Hoffman and like there's a story that's told about him. He's one of the most prominent yippies. And he supposedly said he knew there were FBI informants like within a meeting they were having. And so he told everybody that the new way to get high was to stuff banana peels up your asshole because it made you trip like LSD because he knew that FBI people would have to like verify all the claims <laughs> and have to go do that. Um, they, they like did these stunts, but they also like ran candidates and stuff. So I was going to run through like what I think are their greatest hits. Um, which is in 1970, one of them ran for, I think, mayor of Vancouver. And her one of her official campaign promises was to, quote, repeal every law, including the law of gravity, so that everyone can get high. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, brother. Um, and in, also in 1970, a bunch of them in Detroit went to City Hall. And this is a thing they did. I think we should all bring back. They would apply for official permits for like really crazy stuff. So they applied for a permit to blow up General Motors with like a bunch of dynamite. <laughs> and then like went on TV and they were like, they denied us. I guess we'll have to do it some other way. Um, <laughs> But my favorite thing that they did is in 1968, they nominated their own presidential candidate at the DNC in Chicago, a pig. And his name was Pegasus, uh, AKA Pegasus the Immortal or Pegasus JPEG. Um, And so they uh, nominated him and they said that they preferred him because if we can't have him in the White House, then we can have him for breakfast. I don't support (laughs) that, I don't eat pork. Um, uh, yeah, I'm glad this that wasn't like an animal rights statement. Just like, <laughs> but I would like to bring back public stunts and uh, permit uh, tomfoolery. That's my 2024 uh, challenge. <laughs> cool. Well, I think then, Kiki, do you have your uh, what, what's your weirdo movement you'd like to bring to the to the committee? <laughs> so my weirdo movement that I'd like to bring to the committee 
actually is from the UK because I wanted to make a point that dumb shit doesn't just happen in the US. British people do it too. <laughs> uh, and that brings Stupid us Stupid to- British people? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that would be Militant Elvis Party uh, started by David Bishop and it started in the 90s. Um, he's also called Bus Pass Elvis. Um, the party has sometimes been called Elvis Loves Pets. <laughs> And basically, this guy uh, started this movement to overthrow capitalism for turning Elvis into a fat media joke. (laughs) Uh, So some of his bangers included his campaign promises were to go to Antarctica and shout at icebergs to stop melting, to preserve the red squirrel, to place giant photos of celebrities at airports to discourage undesirable foreigners from entering Britain. (laughs) I wish he had specified which celebrities, because there's some celebrities I don't want to see at the airport either. <laughs> oh, man. Just uh, Jim Caviezel is there greeting people. <laughs> uh, one of his big platforms was to make Bono the Pope. Um, he called George Bush the Antichrist. They were fighting for the Amazon rainforest, against climate change, anti-large corporations. Oh, and here here's the here's the real twist is they did they ran several times and they would usually get between like 50 and 100 votes. But one year they did actually beat like the Lib Dem party uh, in a city council election um, by about 12 votes. So or sorry, 11 votes. So they didn't win the seat, but they did beat like an actual recognized party. Um, and what they won was one one with was promising to give old age pensioners 30 percent off at brothels. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, you definitely convinced 11 guys. That's a good idea. <laughs> um my question here, though, is where do they this? Where's this group land between my group, the Larouche bags, who are like hardcore believers, and Max's group, who are just like, and it's just like so chaos. Is it, does this group, the Mad Elvis group, are they like actually into this stuff? Or are they just like fucking around and caught like causing a scene? <laughs> well, that's kind of what I was having a hard time figuring out too from my very brief reading. I'm like, what does this guy like actually want? Like, what is what are his real you know, like core pillars here. But I think he's just like, like, like kind of a dumb hippie. Um, but like also like one of those guys who like voted for Kanye, you know, like, oh, well, fuck everything. Nothing matters. Vote for Kanye. You know, like uh, yeah, taking votes away never seems like a good idea. <laughs> I will say to wrap this up. So Lyndon LaRouche, one of the things he would train his followers to do is like guerrilla f- warfare and also like self-defense like he made sure they all knew how to use nunchucks fuck yeah and and uh knew how to do karate and do you know who else was a big fan of karate elvis (laughs) (laughs) he's always going (laughs) (laughs) ah democracy in action it does make me feel a little better about every douchebag that's ever been like, oh, voting is pointless anyway. Yeah, maybe, but you know what? I- I'd rather you not vote than back a bootleg Andrew Tate. Ugh. Anyway, let's go back to Jesse and Brittany. Who or what was the moment for each of you where you were like, whoa, I've been living a lie. Like the- what I've been taught has been so wrong. Like what was that critical moment for you guys? 
Yeah, I, I am often asked this question and I've tried to think about it very hard and I, I can't come up with any specific moment. I really think it was just over time, the the slow realization that I think two things happened at the same time. I started to lose respect for my parents and I started to realize that the things that they had taught had taught me were not true. And so those two things were happening at the same time, which worked together to give an opening for other people to kind of come in and teach me the realities of the world and show me that, you know, it was not like what I had been, what I had been told. And so my dad left when I was 12 and that really helped things. I mean, (laughs) it was, uh, more difficult and more easy in, in, in different ways. I mean, it was by and large a good thing that he was gone. And I believe that I was lucky to be in a situation where, for whatever reason, teachers felt like they could take their time to reach out to me, extend their kindness to me, be there for me, and help help coach me along in a way that maybe some other kids don't don't have. And it's not like I was an easy kid to deal with. I mean, I was a dick. And a lot of these teachers that I, you know, was not kind to or did not treat well, instead of just disregarding me, took their time with me. And, and so that I think is lucky. And we started going to church as kind of a lifeline for my mom so that she could ask people for money. And it turned into a really good situation for me personally, because I was introduced to, I refer to him as my former pastor. I'm still very close with him today, but he, you know, luckily she took us to like a liberal church where he would make jokes to me that he was going to indoctrinate people with like liberal messaging during his sermons. And, um, (laughs) you know, that just happened to be another lucky moment where like I was taken to this church that happened to have these views and these nice people and they cared about us. And, um, it was just kind of a slow unraveling of the darkness that I, I just eventually was able to crawl my way out. Because you guys grew up completely on the opposite side of the spectrum and then came into the left, I wonder if that offers you a healthier, more critical view of the left. Like, you know, when you grow up on the left, it's it's insular, the same way anything else is insular. What would be your criticisms of the left's marketing and the left's, you know, battle cries? I think for me, I would say uh, not going far enough to emphasize the policies that we need to implement to improve people's lives. Like, for example, the defense spending, the $800 billion annual defense spending that gets put into place, there's very little uh, debate over whether or not that should be passed. I mean, that's pretty much bipartisan support every year. It's like, yeah, we'll give the Department of Defense however many billions of dollars they want, even though they can't pass an audit, they've failed you know, five audits since 2017, like we're just going to give them this money rather than try to funnel that toward ending homelessness or, you know, increasing budgets for food stamps. Instead, the House, uh, the Republicans in the House are now looking to cut uh, WIC, the program that helps babies, children and, and mothers with food. So, you know, I think that they could do a better job people on the left, politicians on the left, emphasizing the actual policies that we need to put into place to help improve people's lives. And I think by doing that, by actually showing how the government can help improve people's lives, 
they would capture more of these Republicans who are maybe skeptical and not all the way far gone with MAGA, not all the way far gone with QAnon. And they can actually show like, hey, we we want to help. We want to improve people's lives. There's a difference between us and the Republican Party. And this is what we're doing to help. And my answer, I think, would be it would be that. But yes, and here, um, I think if we're talking about left, I think Brittany just gave an answer for well, like liberalism. But if you're if I'm going to criticize the left, it would be this uh, this strange purity culture um, within leftists in America, where now AOC is oh she's a turncoat, and mm-hmm. there's this strange uh, purity thing, and there's no strategy to it. I think it's a cynicism driven motivation. And I think cynicism serves no one any good. It's only destructive. Which I think has always been a strength of the right is that they have always been very like ride or die. Like politics is a blood sport. We protect our own. Anybody that flies under Trump's flag is one of ours. But you said it yourself, like you were talking about like rhinos earlier. Yeah, I think that especially when campaign time rolls around and you have many different options other than Donald Trump, you're going to see people picking sides. You've got your Mike Pence's, you've got your, uh, to a a more aggressive degree, Chris Christie. But people are having to choose if they're going to be a Ron DeSantis Republican or a Donald Trump Republican. And it causes... If you speak out of turn or ill of Donald Trump in any way, you're out. You're not a Republican because this is no longer America's Republican Party. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. And that's where you see the divisions and the fracturing, I think. Do you think that maybe that is something that's hopeful? Like, do you think that that makes it easier to maybe break into those minds and help people see the light? Or is that even what we're striving for? Well, I mean, I think. Yes, we're all we we should always be striving to changing hearts and minds. Absolutely, without a doubt. But I think we need to be realistic about that job and what exactly it's going to take. And too often, you know, there's a phrase that that hopefully someone finds their empathy before they find their tragedy. And too often people uh, are saddled with horrendous medical debt or they find out that a relative is gay. That's not a tragedy, but to them in their political worldview, that is. And then they find, oh, this immense empathy and passion for realizing uh, what the rest of the world sees as truth. So there, there is hope to, to change these minds. But unfortunately, I think they're going to have to find their particular personal tragedy before their mind is changed. But if you're poor, though, th- there is no end in sight. You're never going to win. I mean, if you're rich, the the end is where you have the most money and nobody's, you know, infringing on that. But if you're poor, the problems that are perpetuating your poorness are never going to go away. Black people are never going to go away. Gay people are never going to go away. <laughs> like, it is a boogeyman. You can't fight it. Yeah, well, that's that's why the the myth of meritocracy in America and the myth of of the American dream, quote unquote, is so pernicious because it's a carrot being dangled in front of poor people their entire life where they aspire. I could be Donald Trump if only I worked hard, discounting what we talked about already, luck. And it it does have a dangerous and damaging effect on hundreds of millions of Americans who will never realize the kind of wealth that Donald Trump was lucky enough 
to be born into. He did not create it. And most, most millionaires don't create their wealth. They're born into it in some way. Or it's created on the backs of other people. Absolutely. When we're talking about like culture wars though, you know, like the the rallying cry of the right is oh, woke culture, blah, blah, blah. Do you sometimes actually maybe feel that 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 is a fault of the left? Is is that possible that the left doesn't spend enough time focusing on the bottom line when they when they do engage in these arguments with the right? Well, I think it depends on the goals. You know, I, I think that like when we look at polling of young people, like a new uh, Harvard youth poll just came out uh, surveying people ages 18 to 29, and they found that young people are way more progressive than even they were five years ago. I mean, like 73% of people in this poll believe that homelessness can happen to anyone. 62% believe that uh, the government should be providing basic necessities for people. I mean, ultimately, there's going to be a, a loss in the Republican Party through attrition. We've already seen some of it. A lot of them died because of COVID. And as they continue to age and die, there's going to just be a natural attrition. But there's also uh, the young people who are increasingly progressive on LGBTQ is issues and um, just ensuring that there's a base, a basic social safety net. So I think that over time, the Republican Party, they're trying to have the cultural issues, quote unquote, cultural issues dominate. But ultimately, they're not winning over young people. They're just kind of staying in their little old people silos and not convincing anyone that's outside of that, that, you know, they should come over to this side. It's called an armchair. An old people silo. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, the genesis of it is not from your average Republican, uh, even strategist. It comes from the extreme portions of the party. Uh, with CRT, we saw Chris Rufo, who himself said that CRT doesn't have to actually be legitimately uh, literally what what CRT is, critical race theory that's taught in like law schools in higher level grad schools. It can be anything we want it to be. And so he was the genesis, the nexus for that. And then your, your more run-of-the-mill Republicans run away with it. When it came to what is woke, you've got your white nationalists who lead the charge on that. And then it becomes more mainstream. The problem lies in the fact that the, the distance between the extreme of the party and the mainstream of the party is fucking non-existent. It's all extremist. Marjorie Taylor Greene, going back to this dum-dum, she's no longer an extremist in the Republican Party. She's been kicked out of the Freedom Caucus, the most extreme caucus in House Republican land, because she's too mainstream. So it is, it's a harbinger of doom that we're witnessing in real time that they are dead set on destroying the country while they destroy themselves. It's uh, frightening. It's absolutely frightening. I think also when everything comes back to this kind of threat that they view to their vision of a white Christian nation, like everything kind of comes back to that what they see as a threat to their identity and the identity of the country being a white Christian nation. Um, when you put it in terms like that, I think it starts to make a little bit more sense when you're like, huh, how do all these pieces fit together? Well, when you boil it down to what it is and it's just racism, I yeah. think it, it helps kind of explain all of the different pathways that you get to that hatred. Whew, good lordy. Thank you, Jesse and Brittany, for sharing your story, not just with us, but with everyone else. 
parents really do be fucking us up. But it's comforting to know that whether your parents are alcoholics or white nationalists, we really can break the cycle. All hope is not lost. Next up on the pod, politics may be a blood sport, but murder and mayhem is not just for politicians. People on both the right and the left eat up stories of people getting hacked to pieces, all from the safety of their favorite podcast app. So next time, we're talking to Dr. Amanda Vickery, a psychologist who specializes in our obsession with true crime. If I'm listening to this stuff, maybe I listen to a podcast on the way to work and another one on the way home, and then I come home and I watch Dateline or I read a true crime book before bed or something. What is this doing to my perspective of the world? And what is this doing to my anxiety? Some of that is good, but if you're thinking, you know, for example, the other night we needed something from the store. It was already dark out. My husband's like, do you want to go get it? I'm like, I can't go get it. I'm going to be kidnapped and killed. I can't go to the grocery store past 8 p.m. Of course not, you know? That's, I don't know if that's healthy. New episodes come out every other Thursday. We've changed up the date. Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Give us a reading and a review is a huge help and it makes sure other people can find the show. Indecent is a production of Next Chapter Podcast. Go to ncpodcast.com to learn more. If you have something you want us to talk about, a guest you want to recommend, or your parents hold some indecent views you want to share, well, just go ahead and shoot us an email at indecentthepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at indecentkiki. And follow me at It's Kiki Anderson. My producers are Max Wolfson and Pete Musto, and our executive producer is Jeremiah Tittle. I've been Kiki Anderson, and this has been Indecent, where NSFW meets LMAO. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a a three-times-a-week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next Chapter Podcasts.